e pluribus unum. That's a Latin phrase loosely translated, out of many one, e pluribus unum. It is one of the mottos of the United States. Its origins as a motto of our nation go back to its earliest days when we were 13 colonies and therein later, though, becoming one new nation. Uh, in the years since, uh, that idea of e pluribus unum has taken on a slightly different uh, note uh, as we have become something of a melting pot nation over the, the years. And so you could say it is not just out of many one, but out of many peoples, one people. Uh, and that has certainly been something that has typified this nation for a long, long time. It's a great ideal. It's a wonderful thing to aspire towards. We don't do a very good job at it. Uh, if you think in terms of the corrosiveness of our culture wars that we are living in the midst of, uh, so much so that we can't, as a, as a nation, as a culture, seem to come down on, decide uh, as one uh, what it means to be a diverse people, uh, what it means uh, to speak of, of real unity uh, or inclusiveness or even what, my goodness, even what the word democracy means. Uh, we're having problems settling on simple definitions uh, along, along those lines, uh, so much so that perhaps the new phrase, and I don't know what the Latin would be, has become out of many, even more. It's not a good way to go. It's not a good way to go. What's the answer? What's the answer? Politics? Law? Pop culture? It's the gospel. It's the gospel of Jesus. It's the church being the church and living that out before the watching world. That's the answer. If you have a Bible, I'd ask you to turn with me now to the book of Ephesians. That's where we're going here in the second of these uh, four messages on the topic of the spiritual gifts. Uh, there are four passages typically that we go to on, on this study. By the way, if you're trying to find Ephesians, that's General Electric Power Company. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, or as Asa Stone so winsomely put it years ago for me, Gentiles and pork chops. So um, uh, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. We are in, Asa, I don't know where you are. There you are. Sorry, buddy. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4, we're reading verses 1 through 16. Uh, this is, as I said, the second of four. Uh, when you're trying to think in terms of the spiritual gift passages in the New Testament, Think in terms of fours and twelves. Uh, think in terms of fours and twelves. You have 1 Peter 4, last week, Ephesians 4, this week, Romans 12 in two weeks, and then 1 Corinthians 12 after that. Two fours, two twelves. That's where you can go to, to study these things. Well, we are in Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 16. Now, I'm just going to fess up from the start. There's probably a month of sermons here, at least. That may be lowballing it. So, I don't know. We do the best we can. Uh, verses 1 through 16, Ephesians chapter 1, excuse me, 4. Ephesians 4, uh, verses 1 through 16. Hear now the word of God. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, 
urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. And saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Well, let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for the life and ministry of the Apostle Paul, and we thank you for your work in his life, such that there was ministry, such that there was fruit, such that he was not just Saul, the well-educated Pharisee, but he became Paul, Paul the Apostle. Thank you for the church at Ephesus. Thank you for your work there in the mid-first century. Thank you for this letter. It's very long, dense, beautiful, soaring letter. So much here, so much here, and all of it completely, utterly applicable for us today. Uh, We ask that you would help us here, help us grasp something, just something, just a little more of what you have in mind for us, something more of what Paul is, is saying here, that we could run with, that we could live out, that we could grow into together, individually and together. Thank you. Thank you for this time that we have. We ask that you would make it fruitful. We ask that you would make us not just students of your word, but people whose lives are marked and bearing it out such that people would just look at us and and wonder, and we would gladly speak with great compassion and joy within our hearts. We pray in your name. Amen. It's a bit written as of late. An article, in particular, a scholarly article I came across on the topic, the connection of identity and memory. The connection between those two things, identity, who you are, and memory, what you're drawing back upon. Let me read you this excerpt. BBC Radio 3, the UK's primary classical music station, ran a fascinating series of articles on music and memory. Adam Zeman, a professor of cognitive and behavioral neurology, wrote about amnesia and memory loss and their relationship to epilepsy. Zeman mentioned two patients, Peter and Marcus, who described their amnesia in very similar terms. 
One said, my memory of my past is a blank space. I feel lost and hopeless. I'm trying to explore a void. Both describe how disconcerting it is to look at photos. Even though they recognize themselves, they have no recollection of the moment. One said that it's like reading a biography of a stranger. He's conscious of recent memories slipping away from him like ships sailing out to sea in the fog, never to be seen again. Two things stand out in Zeman's essay. First, without memory, it's hard to cling to an identity. So one of the patients said, I don't have the moorings that other people draw on to know who they are. Second, it's hard to have hope when you don't know your past. As Zeman explained, the inability to invoke the past greatly impedes their ability to imagine a future. That is hard and frightening to envision. No moorings of who and where you were and are. Good news. Paul is speaking very clearly here in Ephesians to tell us, to encourage us in the reality that the church need never struggle with those things. The church need never struggle with those things, with who we are and why we're here. Let me read verse 1 again from Ephesians 4. Listen to what he says. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Let me unpack that, if I may. So this is the Apostle Paul. He is writing from prison in Rome. He is there because of the gospel. Now, that immediately lends a great deal of weight and gravity to what he is about to say, who he is and why he's writing from where he's writing. And he's writing to the church in, in Ephesus, He's halfway through this letter. It's a long letter. He's halfway through. If you want to think in terms of chapters, chapters 1 through 3 are over. He's shifting now to chapters 4 through 6. It's a dramatic shift, a change is taking place here. He's moving from exposition to explanation, from the indicative to the imperative, He's from what God has done to now how we are to live in response to what he has done. It's a tremendous shift that's taking place here. Parts 1, part 2. Chapters 1 to 3, chapters 4 to 6. And he speaks of a calling, a calling that we have. And in using even that term, he's hearkening back to so much that we have spoken of already in Ephesians 1 through 3, speaking of the rich blessings that the Christian has, all because poured out unto us because of God's sovereign grace. We have a great calling is the point that the Apostle Paul is trying to make. A great calling in terms of what he has done for us and his intentions behind that. And so Paul says that we are to live in a way that is worthy of that, that is fitting to that calling, that matches with that calling, that is appropriate to it, or, or, or literally that brings up the other beam of the scales. That's the language that Paul is using here. We, are to, we have a great calling. The church has a great calling calling. And Paul would have us to understand that we are to live in a way that is worthy of that. It is worthy of that calling. Now, what would that be? 
What shape would that take? Well, he tells us very clearly as this unfolds in these verses after in verses 1 through 16, three things. It's there in your outline. What would it look like to live in a way that is worthy of such a calling that we have? Demonstrating the unity. That would be the first thing. Demonstrating the unity. The second thing would be honoring the diversity. And then thirdly would be striving towards maturity. So you have unity, you have diversity, and you have maturity. Demonstrating unity, honoring the diversity, and striving towards the maturity. That's what it would look like to live in a way that is worthy of this great calling that we have as the church. Let's look at this together, uh, points one through three in turn. So demonstrating the unity. This is verses one through six. It's just soaring heights that Paul goes to and what he says here. Let's just start simply with what is it we're to do? What is it? Just plainly spoken, what is it we're to do? Verse three, he says it. We are to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So this is not something... This unity of the Spirit is not something we create. We don't do this. We don't create this. We don't make it. We don't invent it. It's something of the Spirit. It's the unity of the Spirit. He makes it. He creates it by bringing us in, making us one family, one body, making us one in the gospel. This is something that the Holy Spirit does. We don't create this. Our calling is to maintain it, to guard it, to protect it. And we are to be eager to maintain that. That's the language. To strive towards that. To recognize there may be struggle. It may be work. It may take labor. We're to make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Or if I can just put it this way, it may sound paradoxical. It may even sound nonsensical. We are to fight to live at peace. We are to fight to live at peace. That's the sense of what Paul is saying here. That's what we are to do. Now, how are we to do it? What's the means towards that? Well, he tells us that as well. Back it up to verse 2. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. And then read on. We're to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So those things that he lists there in verse 2 are the foundation stones. Those are the foundation stones upon which this unity is built. And without them, let me just be very frank, without them there is no hope whatsoever, no hope whatsoever of any real, lasting peace, unity whatsoever. Just forget it. Without those foundation stones. And it's worth noting that what Paul lists here are not structural strategies towards unity, like if we can build it this way and you know, get the organizational chart just right, that'll make for unity. That'll make for, for oneness. That'll make for peace. No, not at all. This is not, these are not um, uh, um, structural strategies. These are character qualities, something deep within that. And worth noting, these are the very character qualities you see in Jesus, And that slowly but surely become ours as we live in relationship with Jesus. These are the foundation stones. This is how this comes about. It's what we're to do. This is how we are to do it. Now, why are we to do it? Why is this so important, Paul? What's the big deal? 
Well, he goes on to tell us that as, as well in verses 4 through 6. And you're going to notice he's just peppering, pounding uh, with this word one. You see it seven times uh, here in verses 4 through 6. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So we couldn't get it. It's one, one, one after another. Trinitarian realities is what he's telling us. That's why. Because of the, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. That's why we are to live as one, which points us towards the nature of the church. The very nature of the church. Let me read you this quote from John Stott in his commentary on Ephesians. It is thought-provoking. The unity of the church is as indestructible as the unity of God himself. It is no more possible to split the church than it is possible to split the Godhead. Wow! Think about that for a moment. That's the grounds for this call to demonstrating the unity of of the faith because of these things. Now, but I know that begs a question. Well, then how do you explain the conflict? Well, you just sang about it. Dave alluded to it in, the, in setting us up for Psalm 133. So how do you then explain all the conflict within churches, between churches, that creates new churches? How do you explain that? Well, let me, let me come at it from a, a word picture, if I may. So imagine, if you will, um, you have Mr. and Mrs. Jones, and they get divorced, but they have three sons, Tom, Dick, and Harry. And Tom, Dick, and Harry, in, in, in a sequel, the consequence of that divorce, and all the sides it takes, and the, the breaking of all that, they move away from one another, far, far away. No forwarding addresses. I mean, one goes to Canada, another goes to Australia, and another one goes to Germany. They are not on speaking terms whatsoever. There's no contact anymore these siblings, and we are the cousins of the Jones boys. Now, how should we respond to that? Just like, eh, oh well. No. We should be coming alongside them and saying, the visible appearances, what I'm seeing, belies and completely contradicts the invisible realities of who you are. What are you doing? This is completely wrong. You are family. You're not living like that. What's going wrong? We would come alongside to try and do peacemaking, to, to work. We would long for and labor towards reconciliation between these estranged siblings. I would hope we would be at least be somewhere on our radar. Transpose that into the church. And the conflicts within local bodies and between other bodies. That's what same thing is going on. Where the visible appearances are belying and contradicting the invisible realities that are much, much deeper and truer. And we're simply failing to live out of that. It doesn't make what's true false. It just means we're not living in accord to the truth. We're not being what we are. Oh, that we would. And that's what Paul is speaking to here, the need to demonstrate the unity. The church has a great 
calling upon her. And you must be living in a way that is worthy of such a calling. That's the first point. The second being the need to honor the diversity, though. Equally strong, demonstrating the unity, but honoring the diversity as well. Let me pick this up now. We, we move into verse 7, and you'll see the first word is but. That's a clue. It's a transition taking place here. Verses 7 through 12 is what we're going to read now. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. And again, there is a, a real shift that has taken place here. What Paul wants us to understand is, is that this unity is not the same as uniformity. Those are two very different things. This unity is enriched and enhanced by the diversity. There are distinctions within the oneness, and he wants us to see that. So we'll start with the giver of the gifts, and that's in verses 7 through 10. This is that's all about Jesus, all about Jesus here in verses 7 through 10. When he's, he's speaking here of the ascension, Christ's ascension. That's what he's getting at here. Now, Paul is quoting here from Psalm 68. That's the quotation that you may see there if you're in your English Bible, if it's tabbed over some. He's quoting here from Psalm 68, and the psalmist in Psalm 68 is making reference to how in the ancient world, kings, when they would come back from a victorious battle, would share the spoils of war with their people. And the psalmist in Psalm 68 is saying, that's what the Lord God has done for you. That's what the Lord God has done for you. He is like this conquering king. Now, Paul, centuries later, reading Psalm 68, recognizes that the ultimate fulfillment of that is Jesus. Jesus in his life, death, resurrection, ascension, and giving of the Holy Spirit to his people. That's what Paul is, is driving at here. Uh, the, the, this, is, this is about Jesus' ascension, and Jesus' ascension is our assurance is our assurance that indeed he has given us gifts. What does he say? Verse 7, that sets the whole thing up. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. These gifts, now this is similar language used to when Paul speaks elsewhere to the gift of salvation, similar language. But here, clearly, at least in the context, we know he's not speaking of the gift of salvation. He's not speaking of saving gifts, but serving gifts. Serving gifts. And no one is excluded. We saw that in 1 Peter 4 last week. Now we see it again here in Ephesians 4. To each, to each. And no, no, you'll know no asterisk there in your, in your text. There's no footnote down at the bottom that says, except you, or except him, or except her. Each, each one of us has been given these serving gifts. So what are the gifts themselves? Well, Paul shifts here in verse 11, speaking not so much of the abilities now, but to individuals, the gifted individuals within the body, and uh, the, the gifts themselves being um, 
those serving within the body in the context of, of Ephesians 4. He lists that as, again in verse 11. I alluded to this earlier. I'm going to say it again. There are, there's variation in these New Testament gift lists. Again, 1 Peter 4, Ephesians 4, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12. There's variation in each one of those gift lists. None of them are identical. Some have different ones and others don't have other ones, and it tells us some things. None of them are exhaustive. Um, each one is, is, is different, and it would seem that the author has particular things in mind depending on the situation and who it is that he's writing to. That's something worth noting. But also, in this gift list here in Ephesians 4, in that context, apparently for whatever reason, it was important to emphasize this, what you see as a common theme in those gifts. And that is the vital importance of the Word of God at work in the life of God's people and the danger of heresy, the danger of false teaching. You see that in this theme of what, where Paul is going in the listing of these gifts and then where he keeps going as you keep reading through Ephesians 4. The purpose, what are these gifts for? Okay, that's the giver them, that's the giver talked about that, the gifts themselves. What, what are they for? Verses 11 and 12. Let me read that again. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. Why? To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. This is so vital. This is so important for us to grasp. The, what is the immediate purpose that Paul is speaking to here? The immediate purpose is that the church might be equipped that the church might be strengthened, it might, it might be uh, readied, if you will. Those individuals that he has just listed in verse 11 are in no way to be thinking of that their job, their function in the body is to do the ministry, but rather their function is to equip the rest of the body, the saints, to work out of their gifts to do the work of the ministry. The folks that he has listed and the leaders of the church, their, their function is not to monopolize, but to mobilize. That's the function of the leaders of the church. It's so vital for us to recognize that and, and to wrestle with the implications of that, to honor the diversity of these gifts, even in the midst of all this beautiful unity. There's so much here that cuts against the grain. So much here that cuts against the grain of the way we, we typically operate, the way we typically think. There's so, such terrible models of ministry out there. There's some really awful ones. One would be the pyramid. You know how the pyramid works? It's where you put the pastor at the top and all the underlings, the little people underneath. And he, he, he's, he's the deal. That is awful. That is so unbiblical. Here's another one. It's the bus. Oh, yeah, you're all on the same bus, but who's in the driver? He got the pastor. He's in the driver's seat now, and everyone's just passively along for the ride, going wherever he takes them. Again, horribly unbiblical ideas. There are also some terrible, not just models, but mentalities, and I tried to allude to this, spoke to this, we saw it coming out in Ephesians 4 last week. It's worth noting here again, and that's where we get to thinking that these gifts are about us. That we get to deluded into thinking that these gifts are about how I can be fulfilled. That this is how I can come to realize myself. 
We're just transposing the world's framework into the church. Your gifts that are real, whether you know what they are or not, are not about you. They're about the people around you for the building up of the body, for the building up of the body. That's that ultimate reason. I spoke to the immediate reason, that being the equipping, but the ultimate thing that Paul speaks of is building up of the body, body building, not of your fantastic physique, but of the church, that the church might be built up and strengthened. Again, we have this great call. The church has this great call. We have to live in a way that is worthy of that. That takes us to the last thing. Not just demonstrating the unity, not just honoring the diversity, but striving towards maturity. This is verses 13 through 16. In a way, what Paul is doing here is, is he's almost answering, he's answering the unspoken question. Of course, he's writing a letter, so how can anyone ask a question? But, but he, he recognizes a question could easily be asked. But, but Paul, tell me more. I don't understand. Tell me more. How does this building up of the body work? Well, that's where he's going. Good question. Glad you asked. That's where he's going in in verses 13 through 16, unpacking that pregnant phrase there uh, that he says in in verse 12. Until, verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Whoa, Nellie. I think that's what Calvin said in his commentary on Ephesians. Um, how, how is this maturing described? I mean, there's this soaring language that, that Paul uses here. I don't have time to unpack it so much. I'm just going to give you some observations. So he speaks of, of the unity of the faith and the knowledge of Christ, which immediately tells us something. That doctrine does not necessarily divide. Not in and of itself. That's when divisive people get a hold of doctrine that we have division. But doctrine rightly understood, the gospel, as Paul speaks of, I mean, he, he, he weds these two things together, the unity of the faith and the knowledge, the knowledge of the Son of God, the one enhancing the other. It's a beautiful, beautiful fusion worth noting. Another point of observation would be, he speaks of mature manhood, this, this maturity. But here, recognize he's not speaking of, of, of individual maturity. He's speaking of corporate, congregational health is what he's talking about here. And then he goes on in another clause to speak of the measure of the fullness of Christ. And I don't, I can't even get my mind around this. But that's, that's language that he, he's picking, piggybacking on something else. He says earlier in Ephesians, he's speaking of the, 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 um, the fullness of God, and, and he's clearly helping us to see or poking at us, prompting us to see that this is Jesus, 
as if we hadn't gotten that enough already in the book of Ephesians, that Jesus is fully, not just man, but fully God. And here he's speaking to all that Jesus has. He gives. And then you think of what he has. And he gives. It's just soul-stirring. It's mind-blowing what Paul is saying here, how this maturity is described, and then you go on, and you, you keep reading, and you think in terms of how it functions, how it works, how it, how it operates. Negatively, you can say, just based on what Paul says here, it prevents and protects. It, it prevents and protects. It's like a pre-emergent herbicide. Um, he uses common language here of, of immature children and storm-tossed ships, Right? And the idea being that, that immaturity, if not checked, leads to instability, which then leads to susceptibility towards all kinds of error, you know, just the, the, the latest, greatest thing. And this body being built up and functioning as it is intended to protects us against that and, and prevents that sort of thing from happening as the body is healthy. And as we are part of that body, that sort of thing is prevented and we are protected from that. It's a beautiful picture that ought to, to, to warm us and entice us. But there's something else here, and that is the, the encouraging thing that we find in, in this relationship between truth and love. The relationship there between truth and love in verses 15 and 16. Or, or literally, as Paul says, truthing in love. That would be a literal translation of, of that clause. Truthing in love. And the idea being that Never are the two to be divided. In fact, we have no understanding of the one without the other. We have no understanding, none, of the one without the other. Truth is hard and brittle if it is not softened with love. They'll know we are Christians by our orthodoxy. Isn't that the line? Amy, wasn't that the line? I don't think that was the line. Nor is it what the Bible says. Now, that orthodoxy leads to what? To love, if it's lived out right and understood and embraced properly. Truth becomes hard and brittle, if not softened by love. But love, love is soft and weak, spineless, without truth. You cannot have one without the other. They're monstrosities. They're, they're some kind of mutation. One without the other. But together, truthing in love. Oh my goodness. What you see is this bodybuilding as it is taking place encourages and enables the truthing in love. And then in a cyclical fashion, as we are truthing in love, it strengthens the body. And it just goes. It's intended to go like that. Let me read verses 15 and 16 again. Oh, that we could catch this vision. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Again, we could catch the vision here as to how the body is built up. Paul is speaking very clearly here to the point that there is no 
growth that takes place outside of Jesus. No growth whatsoever is going to happen outside of Jesus. But you, you know what the other part of the formula is? No growth is going to happen without the gifts of the members of the body of Jesus being put to work. He's equally emphatic on both sides of the equation. Equally emphatic on both sides of the equation. Each part absolutely positively must be doing its part in order for there to be health. I mean, my goodness, friends. How well will you run the race if somebody takes out one of your lungs today? How well will you digest that food if I rip out your esophagus? Let me just go on and on and on to the absurdities, right? Of how well a body can function when parts of the body refuse to function. Refuse to be what they are. Living out the intentionality of the one who is again back in verse 7, we read... But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Both parts are equally essential. Jesus bringing about growth within the body and the members of the body at work. Both are equally essential. Read Ephesians 4 verses 15 and 16 and tell me you see another formula. Than that. We have a high calling, a great calling. Oh, that we would walk in a manner worthy of it, which then takes me to this last thing. And I'm going to, I said I was going to mention this earlier, and I certainly want to talk about it now this gift assessment test. We are encouraging everyone here to please, please take the time to do this. I'm not, please don't hear me saying in some pharisaical, legalistic way that if you don't do this, you don't love Jesus. That is not what I'm saying. I am simply saying that as a very practical way of living out the realities of what Jesus is putting in front of us here in these gift passages within the context of a local body. A very practical way. It's easily accessible. We've put it on the website. It's on the Facebook page. If you have an internet connection, you can get connected to this test. What will you expect? What should you expect as you're taking it? It's a comprehensive approach to this, coming at it from four different directions. First, you assess just your own personal, individual traits and giftedness. That may be the hardest part of the test, uh, depending on how self-reflective you are and how, how hard that is for you. The second part is getting others that know you well speaking into that. The third part is you're reflecting on your experiences back over the course of your life and letting that be another data input on this. And then fourthly, just this gut read, just this gut read of your own convictions, of, of what you, you, you think you, your burdens and of your heart are, uh, what you think your own gifts and talents might, might be. Those four data points come in together. And can really tell a lot. It's a great tool. Can really tell us a lot. Now, I'm going to be honest. Some months ago, I chafed at taking that test. Sarah can tell you the story of, of what a bad mood I was in. 
that afternoon, that Sunday afternoon, yes, a Sunday afternoon, I was in a bad mood, it happens, um, and, uh, I, but I finally did it, I was so glad I did, so, so very glad I did, I'll tell you more about that story some other time, but here's what I can, I can guarantee, you'll experience one of these two things, or may, maybe a, a hybrid of them, it will, it will either be a revelation to you or confirmation to you. Revelation, like, the, you're like, whoa, I had, I had no idea. I really had no idea. I've been deluded all this time. That happens. That happens. Revelation. Or it could be confirmation. You know, I, this is exactly what I thought all along. But, you know, both are equally good. Both are equally good that we, and so, so very helpful that we might better honor the Lord, the giver of these gifts, the one who's made us the way that we are, wouldn't it be good to know how he's made us? Wouldn't that be good to explore that? Maybe Would, would that might take us a little further in honoring the giver of the gifts, the maker of, our, the creator of the creation? Wouldn't it be good to know a little bit more about that? So helpful as we're striving to honor him and to serve more effectively in his kingdom. can't encourage you enough to do this. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, indeed, we as your church have a great calling. You have showered us with great mercy and you have great purposes in mind. You mean for us to be a city on a hill, salt and light. You've made us one, a unity that is meant to be lived out. You've made us different a diversity that's meant to be fleshed out, gifts that are there, whether we know what they are or not, gifts that are there apportioned as you deem wise and best, that your church would be equipped, that your church would be built up, and you mean for us all to be involved as a team, as a chorus, as an orchestra, as a body, Oh, would you please bless and enrich this body, Christ Presbyterian Church of Clarksville, Tennessee. Would you please bless and enrich this body. Take this tool, this gift assessment test, and use it as a tool in your good hands that we together as a body would more effectively honor and serve you. Please take us and use us in whatever way you mean to, for your glory, for your glory. And as a consequence of that, even our good, we pray in your name.